So I want everybody to think about this question. Let's compare uh, today to the world of about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, something like that. If you think that the world today is faster paced than 25, 30 years ago, raise your hand. All right. See, look, they told me you can never get a you can never get a hundred percent. You can never get a hundred percent of people in this university to agree about anything, but I prove you wrong. Uh, okay, if you think the world today is more complicated than about 25 years ago, raise your hand. That's about 80%. If you think the world uh, involves whether running your business or running your life, more change, coping with more change, raise your hand. Okay, that's about 88.3%. And finally, if you think in the course of running an organization or your life, you'd have to make more decisions, raise your hand. And that's uh, close to 90%. Okay, this is the reason why we have to talk about leadership. We had some range of opinion, but basically the overwhelming majority of people on every question agree that we're living in a world that's very fast-paced. It's complicated. We have to make lots of choices and decisions. And uh, that's when leadership becomes important. When I started at J.P. Morgan in 1983, we didn't have a leadership training program. And if we used the word leadership, uh, we would have been referring to the three people who were running J.P. Morgan, our corporate office. Leadership meant people, you know, people at the top. And then as we went through the 80s and 90s, the world really changed in such a way that we understood, okay, look, the idea that our leadership ha is going to come only from two or three people is, nut is nuts. Because nobody can be on top of all of this all the time. And instead, we need a quality behaviors that we call leadership from many levels of the organization. Okay? So uh, this is the reason why we have to talk about leadership. and. Let's see how we feel about the leadership we actually have. So now let's have another uh, little show of hands. This is a survey that actually ran in a uh, newspaper. And people were asked, do you have a great deal of confidence in certain sectors of society? Okay. So now let's replicate it right now. If you have a great deal of confidence in our political leaders, please raise your hand. Oh, everyone's asleep already. <laughs> okay, zero. If you have a great deal of confidence in our business sector leaders, raise your hand. Oh boy, 1%, 2%. If you have a great deal of confidence in our education sector leaders, please raise your hand. Reading the, rooting for the home team. <laughs> and finally, if you have a great deal of confidence in our religious uh, leaders, please raise your hand. Okay, <laughs> so <laughs> if I did on Wall Street, we'd get different hands coming up at a different time. All right, so you're so pessimistic here at Franciscan. Let's see how this, the, what the results actually were of this survey. I will just let you read it. I won't comment on it. Okay, now look. This was in 2007 when things were, you know, okay. So we can imagine if this survey were done today, all of these numbers would be much lower, right? So we live in a world that really requires good leadership. It's complicated. It's changing and we don't feel very good about the leadership that we actually have. So what might be better? Let's make this the third part of our little thought experiment. And let's all first quietly think each to ourselves about these two questions. Please think of the names of one or two living people that you would consider to be leaders. And then take a few more seconds and think about the qualities or behaviors that you associate with leading well. And let's take 15 quiet seconds and think about those questions.
And now how about if I invite you to talk to one or two people next to you? Uh, you don't have to agree on anything. You don't have to come up with a uh, consensus. Uh, it's just a little exercise to see what comes to our minds when we think about leadership. Okay, so have a little bit of a chat. I'll get your attention back in a minute, and then I'm going to talk from the podium for about 40 minutes. Okay? Discussions. Right. Why don't we hear uh, two or three names? Um, let's not worry about qualities yet. What names, what names came up in your conversations? Please. Archbishop Dolan, okay, from my home diocese, yes? Father Terry and Father Mike. Okay, they're, they're uh, priests here at Franciscan? Yeah. Okay, all right, let's get another name or two. Sorry? Ron Paul, okay. Anyone else? Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow, okay. Uh, and why do, we think of the, why do we think of those names? Uh, so what kind of qualities or attributes do we associate with good leadership? What were some of the uh, characteristics that came up in your conversation? Please. Um, they genuinely about people more than they care about people. Okay, they care about people more than other people more than they care about themselves. What else? Please. Commitment to a vision, nice, please. Seeing need for change and not just complaining about it, but taking the initiative. OK, beautiful. So seeing a need for change and taking some initiative, not just complaining about it. Did someone hear? Did I see another hand? Communication skills. OK, they're able to communicate their message. Open-minded. Be open-minded. Confident. Confident. OK, and fine, sister? Objectiveness. Objectiveness. OK, I don't know why, I don't know why I'm here. That's, you can just talk to each other, and <laughs> I'm superfluous. But unfortunately, you have to listen to me anyway. <laughs> OK. So who are our leaders? People thought of great names. I wonder who thought about their own name. I guess nobody or next to nobody. Or if you did think of your own name, probably you didn't turn to the person next to you and say, me. You know? <laughs> we are raised in a culture, and especially in a university like this, a Catholic university, we're in a culture that prizes humility. And so we would naturally consider it inappropriate to label ourselves leaders or something like that. And that humility is a beautiful virtue. And there hasn't been enough humility in any company or organization I have ever been associated with. But I want to suggest for the next 35 minutes or so that when it comes to leadership properly understood, maybe your humility is a little bit misplaced. Because uh, you didn't think of yourself as a leader perhaps because we carry around a broken stereotype of what leadership actually is, a wrong idea. And uh, I want to suggest that maybe the first people you need to think about as leaders are yourselves. And I will explain why. Now, what do good leaders do to motivate the people around them? That was part two of the experiment, and people came up with great ideas. Perfect. Uh, and uh, I'm sorry, remind me your name, Brittany? Yeah, uh, had an idea that really is quite close to uh, one that I wonder if other people were thinking of. Uh, enunciated by somebody with wonderful leadership credentials, uh, he said this uh, quote, you must love those you lead before you can be an effective leader. The person I just quoted was General Eric Shinseki, who until a few years ago was chief of staff, highest ranking military officer in, in the United States. And the first time I heard it, this quote struck me as strange, coming from a military class that typically we associate with macho, being tough. Or maybe not so out of place, because the more I thought about it, the more I suspect the generals 
are making better choices when they love the people they must place into harm's way. And I also uh, suspect that soldiers are performing better if they believe that they're valued in a very deep way by the people given the horrible job of sending them out possibly to face their death. So who is a leader and how are leaders leading? Well, we're all leading well or poorly and our claim to leadership is not our status, whether I'm president of this or that or the other thing. Our claim to leadership is simply who you are and the kind of values you're willing to role model in your life and in your work. Now, this does not run according to our stereotype. We don't tend to think about everybody's a leader, but this is not like a gimmick that some slick guy from New York is making up to sell books. If you look in a dictionary, among the definitions of leadership, you will always find one like this. To point out a way, direction, or goal, and to influence others toward it. Now, isn't it true that everybody here is doing these words all the time? We're pointing out a way, if we're students, by virtue of how we use our time, how hard we study, what courses we take, how we treat other people, how we use our money. Uh, some people here are parents. Every, all of us have parents. Could there be any more obvious example of pointing out a way and influencing others than what parents do for their children over a lifetime. So by the dictionary definition, not some gimmickry of mine, good parenting is good leadership. But though all of us are leading, most of us are doing so only subconsciously. In other words, we don't think about ourselves that way for, for good reasons. Uh, but um, in order to get better at it, uh, we all maybe need to get a little more explicit, a little more purposeful. In other words, accept the fact that we have an opportunity here, we have a responsibility, and figure out this is what I want to make of this opportunity that I have. Uh, now, I want to um, uh, spend uh, some time um, uh, developing some ideas about uh, uh, leadership that are drawn from the example of the early Jesuits, not because this is the best way, or the only way, or the formula, but just because it's a bit of my own experience. I was a Jesuit, and then I was an investment banker. And we might uh, think of these uh, professionals, uh, we might think of these as being completely distinct, but, and, and in many ways they are in sense of mission, but in a human sense, all organizations, whether religious organizations or investment banks, have to accomplish the same kind of basic tasks. We have to uh, set goals and reach them. We have to have ideas and convince other people about them. And it struck me that these 16th century priests were doing a lot of these tasks in ways, frankly, that were more effective than the ways we're trying to do them today in supposedly modern organizations. And it strikes me as well that, um, uh, that, uh, th th that uh, how they might have approached a concept like leadership, they wouldn't have used that word, but how they went about their work would be quite relevant to a group like this, where we share uh, a Catholic tradition, because in many ways, these 16th century Jesuits had to accomplish tasks that we all have to accomplish. Namely, how are we going to be people in the world, working, doing things, and not of, of the world? Uh, how are we going to be people who manage to be successful and effective, who can accomplish things and get things done, yet somehow remain principled in what we do? And how can we be people who somehow have whole lives instead of split lives? In other words, who have religious uh, beliefs and manage to work them out into the world. And um, 
this, this concept of being effective in the world, of being leadership, I'm going to talk about it in one way, but really this is part of your DNA. Your, this is part of your DNA in this university here as well. You know, in the president's message, right on the front page of the website, he says, uh, our dynamic Catholic educational environment prepares students spiritually and intellectually to transform the culture, blah, blah, blah. Okay, to transform the culture to me is just saying in other words, to point out a way and to have influence. Yeah. Uh, so this also is a place where you're being invited and mandated to turn yourself into leaders. And I'm just saying, how are you going to do that? And what kind of leaders do you want to be? And I want to talk about four uh, leadership qualities, that we need people who are going to be heroic and who are going to be uh, self-aware and who are going to be ingenious and who are going to be loving. And I'm going to define all four of those, and I'm going to talk at least about three of them maybe about four. We'll see how many people are still awake. Um, so first, um, uh, heroism. The people who are leading well are motivating themselves and other people with uh, real passion to excel and uh, with, importantly, goals that are bigger than any one person's ego. And second, self-awareness. Uh, in order to lead well, you need to know yourself. What are your strengths and weaknesses? What are your uh, values? What are your, what's your outlook in the world? Um, third, ingenuity. The world is going to keep changing. I'm sorry. And only people who also are able to keep adapting to a changing world are managing to lead well. And finally, love. That you treat other people in a way that respects their human dignity and tries to unlock their potential. Now, let me, let me backtrack over each of these ideas. and. Um, you know, with each of them, what I might try to do is uh, start with some little history or anecdote of Jesuit spirituality and then try to connect it into the daily life that, that we're all trying to lead. And I start with heroism. And um, uh, I use a little anecdote uh, about school teaching. Um, the Jesuits, uh, to many of us, are well known for their educational network, right? I mean, Jesuits. Um, uh, have a, a large university network, including Wheeling, not so far from here. And uh, this school network, when it was starting in the 16th century, when the Jesuits are getting started, was not extensive. And frankly, it must have been a complete mess. And no Jesuit would tell you that, but, but I will. Uh, you know, these guys, they had never run anything. And, and in the 16th century, there were no uh, good models of what colleges should look like. So basically, they had to make everything up from scratch. And their early efforts must have been a complete shambles. And one of these guys, nonetheless, is so bold as to write a letter to the king of Spain and to describe these uh, shambolic, messy startups as something so important that, quote, the well-being of the whole world and all Christendom depends on it. OK, that sounds like a Jesuit talking, right? But on the other hand, totally grounded in reality. Because in another place, writing a letter to one of his Jesuit buddies, listen to what this very same guy has to say about what it sometimes feels like to teach kids in school all day. Uh, quote, it's a repulsive, annoying, and burdensome thing to guide and teach and try to control a crowd of young people who are naturally so frivolous, so restless, 
so talkative and so unwilling to work that even their parents won't keep them at home. Okay, now I think this guy in a way has given us a very beautiful model of heroism. The idea that on the one hand, I will deal with reality. What is a problem, I will say is a problem. What's difficult, I will say is difficult. Any, anybody who works in big organizations knows that they're filled with people who are in denial and want to tell us everything is fine and blah, blah, blah. And we know everything's not. So on the one hand, we need people who are honest and brave enough to say, this is a problem and this is what I see. But at the very same moment, uh, we're able to hang on to our vision. This is what we can accomplish if we do this well together. Uh, those uh, of us in the room who are Christian, we might understand this as an incarnational model of heroism. In other words, in some ways, we're trying to imitate this Jesus who shows up in a very messy, complicated world, very imperfect, yet at the same time is, manages to remain undeterred from his vision of how human beings could live and treat one another. We, we all tend to associate heroism with extraordinary events, you know, like saving somebody in a battlefield or saving somebody in a burning building. And of course, that's a unique kind of heroism. But isn't it true that one thing in life that most of us cannot control is what opportunity life will give us? You don't know, would you ever be called to save somebody in distress? The only thing, on the other hand, that we almost always control is how we behave and think and react in front of whatever opportunities life gives us. And let's be very frank, for most of us, the opportunities life gives us are small. And our heroism is not going to be something that uh, we're going to achieve in one spectacular moment that everybody's watching on television, like that guy who landed a plane in the Hudson River. You know, rather, for most of us, our heroism is going to be the fruit of a lifetime of patient and dedicated work. I've been telling story, a couple of stories already about teachers, right? And think about teachers. Teachers have no guarantees that they would show up here and make a profound impact in any student's life. A teacher's heroism is showing up every day and living and working as if he or she might make this kind of impact. And this is another thing that I know is deep in the DNA of this place. Uh, you know, your, your website has a profile of, a, of uh, one of the professors, Jonathan Sanford, and the heading of it is, one teacher can change a life forever. But of course, no teacher has a guarantee that he or she would ever change a life. This is my point. Teachers also understand that they're part of something that's bigger than themselves. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm part of Franciscan University in this case. And there's, there's something profound in that very fact that I want to unpack by means of another anecdote. Um, there's a story about uh, the space agency in the early 1960s. Remember uh, from your history that Russia and the United States are racing to get a rocket to the moon first, right? And the story goes that President Kennedy uh, goes to the space agency, I guess to boost morale, and he's uh, having a tour there. Mm -hmm. And at a certain moment, he meets a janitor who's cleaning an office. And I guess to be polite, he says to the guy, so what's your job here? And the guy says to him, uh, Mr. President, I'm putting a man on the moon. Okay, I'm from New York City. We don't want any part of this gee whiz team spirit stuff, you know? But I know, and everybody here knows, 
that the teams that perform best, whether it's my old JP Morgan, your university, are teams where people get over themselves and appreciate this is not all about you. It's not all about the library, it's not about the marketing department, it's not about teaching theology, but rather we all show up and are willing to invest some part of our ego and our energy and our time into a goal that we consider worthy of our allegiance, something that's bigger than us. Um, you know, we uh, Christians might understand what I just said as a kind of a metaphor for the Christian vision. You know, in other words, the idea that at a certain point of life, I'm willing to accept the fact that, okay, look, I'm sorry, this is not my world. And I'm not here uh, just to uh, uh, have my plan for my humanity fulfilled, but I'm willing to accept that this is God's world, and I'm here to invest myself in something bigger than myself, in God's plan for humanity. So for those of us who are Christian, this is a deeply uh, spiritual, theological concept, but this is also, very interestingly, a business uh, pragmatic concept, and let me uh, explain what I mean by that. There was a very interesting piece of research uh, done by a couple of guys at Harvard, and they uh, took a sample set of very strong performing companies, financially, you know, companies that were successful, and very lousy companies. And they went into each group and did interviews to try and understand, does there tend to be something different about the culture of good companies and bad companies? You know, of course, when we're doing the interviews in the crummy companies, you know, I don't go in and say, okay, look, you're on my list of dogs. You mind if we talk to you for a half hour and figure out why you guys are so terrible, you know? So they do their interviews and they, and they do different conclusions which they uh, outlined in the book Corporate Culture and Performance. And one of the conclusions they draw is that in strong performing companies, individuals habitually tend to be thinking beyond themselves. So, okay, look, this guy's my, this guy's my customer. I have to give this guy a great product that really meets his needs. Or these people are my team. You know, I have to do what I can to help these people be as productive as possible so the team su can succeed. Or, uh, you know, look, this isn't my company, this is the shareholders' company, and I owe the shareholders a, a return. And when they go to the lousy companies, they find exactly the opposite mentality, that people's habitual instinct is to think about themselves only. Uh, in other words, uh, not, this is my customer, I have to give them a great product, but rather, can I screw one more dollar of profit on this transaction so that I make a little more? And in terms of my team, it's not how do I help make these people productive, rather how can I use these people like tools so that I look good and get ahead in the company? So we have this profound concept that uh, we uh, invest in perhaps for our own spiritual and religious uh, reasons, but it's interesting to see how even we might say there's a spirituality of good leadership. In other words, people who can bring that instinct into the workplace uh, can generate uh, positive results for organizations. Now, getting to, um, getting to think this way, getting to operate this way, is a self-awareness task. And so now I want to move on to self-awareness and, and talk about that for uh, a few minutes. And let me again start with the Jesuits. Uh, many people here, I think, would know that every Jesuit, as part of his training, uh, undergoes uh, a month-long uh, retreat experience known as the spiritual exercises, right? And these exercises were St. Ignatius of Loyola's attempts 
to try to translate into a series of meditations uh, the fruits of his own journey to self-understanding or religious understanding. And uh, for, for Jesuits, of course, uh, they, this is a religious experience, you know, a, a Jesuit who is a teacher uh, for a month, there's no teaching and no television, no newspaper, his only job uh, for a month is to think about himself and his religious experience, uh, uh, sorry, his religious vocation. Now I look, look at this through a corporate lens and I also see a very interesting leadership boot camp because each of these people is being forced to think who am I, and what is life about, and what am I here for? Um, uh, anybody, who has, uh, anybody who has managed a lot of people or worked in a human resources department, I did both at Morgan, has been uh, surprised by this phenomenon of rising uh, corporate stars who all of a sudden flame out. Um, so, uh, you know, in other words, when I was at, at Morgan, we hired uh, a lot of the smartest kids in America, you know, because they all want to come to Wall Street and get rich. And they all did very well when the only thing that we asked them to do was move numbers around Excel spreadsheets. But invariably, some portion of them would blow up as soon as we started to ask them to do grown-up things, you know, like dealing with other human beings or dealing with problems that don't have easy solutions. And one of the things you quickly realize in life is that many, perhaps most problems in life don't, and business do not have easy solutions and many problems have no solutions in fact. And so you need people who have good judgment. In other words, who are able to survey, well okay, it looks like we have these three alternatives, none of them is perfect, but here are my reasons for thinking this is the best way for us to go. And then they have courage. The willingness to say, okay, look, this is the way we ought to go. And I might be wrong. I'm willing to take the risk that I look foolish, but this is the way we go. And you may uh, learn in your studies that there's one school of thought that attributes these spectacular flameouts, the inability to develop good judgment and courage to a lack of self-awareness in a deep way. In other words, what sometimes happens, and I'm sorry, now I talk exactly to the kind of people who would who go to this university. What sometimes happens is that very smart people quickly figure out how to do school, but, can't do it, but don't figure out until, until too late how to do life. This is what I mean. That because uh, you're smart, you learn how to master the tasks that go along with digesting information and categorizing information and uh, we become uh, very comfortable with the fact that in many disciplines there are correct answers and exact answers uh, and so we never get exposed until too late in our life uh, to failure or challenge or difficulty or setback the kind of things that enable us to develop what in the corporate world we call learning agility. The abil ability to learn from your own mistakes. The ability to accept feedback from other people. The ability to fail and to get up and keep going. Um, there is a, uh, there is a, um, a psychologist who once worked at uh, Harvard, uh, Abraham Zelznik, who worked with a lot of chief executives in one-on-one -on -one situations. 
and he made this very interesting observation that a disproportionate share of these people were, in his words, twice born. Very rich phrase. He didn't mean it in the religious sense that we might infer. Rather, he meant this, that he noticed how many of these people, early in their adulthoods, had suffered some kind of a crisis. You're an alcoholic, you go bankrupt, your family breaks up, you get fired, whatever it is. And this experience totally knocks them down and makes them say, you know, look, who the heck am I and what do I want out of my life anyway? And his thesis was that it was exactly that experience that explained their ultimate success because it gave them a very deep sense of who they were and what they were willing to stand for. And this was a kind of a power that guided them through the rest of their life. And I guess what I want to uh, take away for you folks in, in, from these uh, little anecdotes are, are two things. One is that if life doesn't thrust on us through a crisis, some moment of self-scrutiny, we all need to create for ourselves as adults processes by which we're going to come to grips in some deep way with who we are and what we want our life about to be about. And of course, any good university, especially this university, is somehow geared to do these kinds of things. Philosophy and theology are in some ways exactly that, you know, forcing people to say, what, is, what are human beings about? What is human life about? Uh, some of you are in a leadership program, which is really forcing you to kind of do the same things, come to this deep kind of self-awareness. Uh, there are all kinds of retreat experiences on this campus, similar kind of thing. Another way, another kind of angle in which people are invited to discover themselves in a deep way. And I guess the other point I want to unpack is this, that uh, hopefully nobody here has had a deep crisis. But I bet everybody here in this room has had some deep difficulty. And if we went around this room and we started to hear the secret resumes of people here, the things that we don't tell people, we would discover that a lot of us have been through very difficult things in life. There are people here who uh, come from terrible family situations. There are people here who've had substance abuse problems in their life or a family member's life. Um, there are people here who have found it very difficult to fit in either in their neighborhood or in some school or something like that. And in a way, American culture is telling us that those are the things we should be ashamed of, that these are the great anchors that hold us back in life. Uh, but what I'm saying, and not what I'm saying, what the research is telling us is that very interestingly, sometimes it's precisely this kind of difficulty or challenge that can be our great source of strength when we've kind of processed it and we have some understanding and we've discovered, okay, look, I'm still here, I survived it, and what did I learn about myself, and how can I use that uh, for the rest of my life? And now, of course, this, this little last three or four minutes that I've been through, those of us in the Christian tradition would also kind of hear a sort of a religious metaphor here too. You know, in other words, we have within our tradition, you know, this deep theological sense that there's some mystery, some redemptive power in human suffering and human difficulty and so on. So we all uh, need to make some uh, deep investment in knowing ourselves well in order to lead well. And we also need, in terms of self-awareness, to have some little mechanism to keep ourselves updated every day on how we're doing 
And uh, Jesuits learn a wonderful little tool in their training that anybody here uh, could begin doing in less than five minutes a day. Uh, Ignatius uh, tells Jesuits that every day they have to make at least a couple of mental pit stops. Ignatius used the word examine, but I think mental pit stops is better in the 21st century. Uh, and he says, so let's imagine now at lunchtime, and I finished my lunch and I'm walking on my way to class and I have a few moments to myself. And he says, first, please uh, remind yourself why you're grateful as a human being. And then he says, uh, um, maybe bring to mind some important objective or, or some uh, important issue in your life that you want to work on these days. And then third, he says, mentally go back through the last few hours and try to take away some little lesson that might help you in the next few hours. So if I was irritated all morning, what was going on inside me? Why was I irritated? And how could I learn from that to be better in the next few hours? Or if I'm a religious believer, I think most of us here are, we might uh, think of it this way. Let me go back through the last few hours and try to understand how God was trying to be present to me or was present to me in the meetings I was in, the people I met, the challenges I faced. And what is that telling me about the rest of the day? I think the genius of this very simple practice is obvious when we think about the world in which we're living now, right? And we're kind of floating along here on this tide of email, meeting, phone call, distraction. I get to the end of the work day, I didn't get to my number one priority. You know, or I had a meeting go badly at 8.30 in the morning, and the whole rest of the day, I'm thinking, oh gee, I wish I said this at 8.30 and I have lost all productivity because I'm living in the past instead of the only moment that God's given to me to live, which is right now. So we need to have some little mechanisms. We need to make a deep investment, and then we need to have mechanisms to keep ourselves updated on how we're doing. I want to tell one uh, more anecdote about a self-awareness mechanism, and then I'm going to talk about love for a few minutes, and then we can have a discussion. Um, there is a, uh, there's a story in uh, Jesuit history, I think, from uh, the early uh, 1700s. I'm glad I'm here and not at a Jesuit university because they might call me out on it. <laughs> Somebody here would probably call me out on it too. And the, and the uh, story, the anecdote is that there was this uh, Jesuit brother, and his job was just to uh, be the doorkeeper for the community, right? And so this is like in the early 1700s. So we can imagine what a complete dog's breakfast of a job that would have been. Yeah. You know, people come into the door all day to beg, see priests, drop things off. I mean, there's no such thing as a telephone or email or anything like that. So people are constantly showing up. And uh, the kind of job that would make you or me endlessly annoyed at whoever was the next person who was unlucky enough to come to the door. And so what the guy did was come up with a little routine for himself, which was whenever he heard a knock on the door, the first thing he would do is say to himself, I'm coming, Lord Jesus. Okay, now what kind of customer service was this guy delivering, huh? Now, when I was in, I, I was a Jesuit seminarian, as you know, right? And when I was a novice, they used to tell this story to edify the novices, you know, the lives of saints. And I must be honest with you, I remember being 18, 19 years old and hearing this story and thinking, oh my God, this is so 1700s, no thank you, you know? <laughs> and now, now I'm no longer 18 or 19, and I think about that story, and okay, in some ways maybe it's a piety that feels a little syrupy to some of us. But having worked in an investment bank and understanding 
the sort of chaotic, difficult, distracting environments that we're living in, I see what that guy was doing through another lens. For him, that was a religious devotion, of course. But hadn't he also come up with a very clever self-awareness mechanism to remind himself multiple times each day of what he thought was important and what he thought he ought to be doing? And in a way, his challenge to me, to us is, okay, pal, you think the way I did it was so syrupy and too pious, what's your mechanism? Uh, so, you know, we, we all have to have some kind of mechanisms to remind ourselves of what we feel we ought to be about. Okay, so I spoke about heroism and self-awareness. I just now want to talk uh, for a few minutes about the idea that uh, when I give a corporate talk, uh, people might be the most skeptical. What place could love possibly have in a big company? And I can assure you that I didn't go around the hallways of J.P. Morgan hugging people and telling them I love them. Um, but anyway, uh, St. Ignatius said that love ought to manifest itself in deeds, not in words. So what kind of deeds could show the impact of love in a workplace? How about this for starters, as love in action with absolute bottom line financial impact? Surely, no chief executive who loved his or her employees would have recklessly gambled their pensions and their careers in order to prop up his own stock option value through fraud, like these morons at Enron, or, or these morons at now probably two dozen other places in the United States. Now, I think this is a totally legitimate example. If you're entrusted with other human beings as your subordinates, as your shareholders, as your colleagues, what do you owe them just because they're human, just for that reason alone? Um, uh, you know, everybody, everybody here knows, uh, especially here at a college, that, um, and especially here at Franciscan, where I notice in uh, your um, mission statement about student life, the university desires all its programs to be guided by the law of love. Why is that? Here's my interpretation. Everybody here knows that children <coughs> learn better, <laughs> people learn better, and perform more effectively when they feel safe. And when people make them know that they're valuable, and when they're raised in environments that have some discipline in them. And how did we ever convince ourselves that our adult needs somehow were different? Um, the, the, the best teams that I was ever on at J.P. Morgan uh, were teams where we trusted each other, uh, where we were more interested in, in helping each other win than watch each other fail, where we didn't stab each other in the back, and when we held each other very accountable to very high standards so that the whole team uh, was better performing as a result. Now, I think that Ignatius could look at a bundle of behaviors like this and say that, all right, this is one of the ways that love could manifest itself in a workplace. If part of the motivation for why I behave and treat people this way is that I believe what the first book of Genesis says, that people are made in God's image and likeness. You know, we say this all the time. If we believe this, then it must have uh, implications for how we treat people in whatever environments we're together with people. Some people here are going to end up working at companies. Franciscan University is a company. You don't call it a company, of course, but it is. It's incorporated, I'm sure. Um, and we ought to reflect a little bit on what is a company. Uh, we all say Jesuits. I've been talking about Jesuits. 
uh, Jesuits is a kind of a nickname or shorthand. You know, some of you may know that when they started their organization in the 16th, in the 16th century, they called their organization a company. Uh, even, even today, in, in any Spanish-speaking country, people would often refer to the Jesuits as La Compañía because the name they had was La Compañía de Jesús, the company, of, the, the company of Jesus. And the way they would have in, 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 uh, internalized that word in the 16th century would be quite different from the way we would today when its meaning is almost completely hijacked by, by business, by commercial uh, industry. But let's remember what a company is. Those uh, who uh, know a romance, those who know a romance language uh, or have studied Latin know what a company is, right? A, a company is two words. It's the word for with or together. <laughs> Not sure what the solution is. <laughs> it's the word for with or together, cum in Latin or con in Spanish, and, and the word for bread pan or panis. So what, what is a company? Etymologically, your company is the group of people with whom you share bread. A group of people that gives you energy. So uh, the, etymologically, the group of people with whom you break bread. The word companion, of course, is exactly the same word. And sometimes words teach us something about our culture, right? Because nowadays, who of us would think of the words company and companion as completely synonymous, right? In fact, we tend to think of those words almost as opposites. You know, who are my companions are the people I go to to complain about the idiots that I have to work with in my company. Um, and so in a way, uh, you know, the, the, the etymology of the words is, is challenging us to try to say, could we make our modern compañías a little bit more companionly places. And why do I say this? Not because uh, I feel like, oh, you know, let's all uh, be able to sing Kumbaya and hug each other and life will be nice. You know, I might believe that as a Christian. But I also say that as a business person. And let me explain why. Some of you know or will study the statistics uh, about uh, modern companies and never uh, do more than half of people in large companies say they're happy in their work. And only about 40% of people in large companies say that they trust their own senior manager. And half of people say that they worry frequently about losing their job. And the work week in these unhappy, mistrustful places is now 20% longer than it was one generation ago. Anybody could tell us that if this is the human environment in which we're asking people to operate, of course they're not delivering maximum productivity. How could they be with all this mistrust, unhappiness, and so on? Uh, so even as a business person, I say we need to make our modern companies a little more companionly places so that people could be more productive and deliver the results that we want as shareholders. But of course, as Christians, we also would understand what I just said in another whole layer, right? Uh, this whole idea of uh, your company, your group, your department is the group with whom you break bread for us has another whole very deep association with it, right? Um, okay, I've, I've more or less used up my time. So I just wanna share uh, two last 
ideas with slides, and then we're going to have a, a, a conversation. So uh, we need uh, leaders who are people who are going to be heroic and self-aware and loving and ingenious, although I didn't talk about that much. Uh, but we also, at the end of the day, need people to be able to be courageous enough uh, to do these things and to be this way. And never has courage been more difficult than today when the world is so complicated and difficult and so on. And so I want to end with a couple of ideas about uh, courage. Uh, here is. Okay, l let me let you read that and, uh, and I explain. So I had the, uh, I had the privilege uh, once to go to Quantico, you know, where the Marine officer uh, training is, is done, right? And, uh, you know, this is the thing that we watch in these movies where uh, these guys are up all night carrying logs around in the pouring rain and navigating through forests in the dark without compasses and all these crazy things, right? And I asked the colonel who ran the thing, of course, you're trying to weed out who you want to accept for officer training and who not, but beyond that, what skills you're trying to give these people. And he said to me, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the only thing I'm trying to do is get these people comfortable with the reality of being uncomfortable. And he said it to me, and I'll never forget it. Because, of course, as far as he was concerned, he meant it kind of literally. He's training people. They're going to drop them into situations where people are going to be shooting bullets at them. It's going to be very confusing. It's going to be very frightening. They won't have perfect information. They'll be extremely uncomfortable. And the first instinct as human beings when we're uncomfortable is to either freeze up, to panic, to run away. And none of those responses are what we need. And so what he says, what I'm trying to do is just say to them, it is uncomfortable. I understand that. I just need you to accept that and keep functioning. And I say it because to me, this is the metaphor for the 21st century. We're living in a very uncomfortable environment. It changes too quickly for us. Culturally, it's very challenging for us. We don't always feel happy or at home in the groups that we're in. And too many people are shrinking from that, unable to cope with that, floating along with that, panicking about that. Uh, but we need you to have the kind of courage that you will be comfortable to keep operating in environments that are very uncomfortable. And here's the last idea I also want to share with you about courage. I'll let you read it, and then I'll comment on it. OK, everybody recognizes this guy, yeah? N Nelson Mandela. Uh, so I remember, uh, most of you don't, but I remember when this guy came out of jail. And I remember those weeks watching this guy on television. And uh, he seemed to have it all, such incredible natural charisma, such self-confidence, such grace. And at a certain level, I was probably thinking to myself as I looked at him, uh, you know, well, of course, that's why he can carry off what he does, because he has all these terrific gifts. And I'm just a schlub. And you know, that's the way it is. And then about a decade later, I remember reading his autobiography and coming to this. And it was like he punched me in the mouth, you know? Because uh, I felt in a way he was saying to me, OK, my friend. You think that I was successful because I had all this self-confidence and all this ability to operate? Uh, no, look, I'm sorry. I was afraid too. Everybody's afraid. The only people who aren't afraid are the narcissists. And we have too many of them anyway. Um, so uh, you know, I, I'm here to tell you that we're all afraid. And so the issue is not. Uh, uh, looking at those who have no fear and complete self-confidence. Rather, the issue is, can we find it within ourselves 
to do what we know we need to do, even though we don't have all the self-confidence and gifts to do them. Um, okay, I've, uh, the, my very uh, last point, and then I finish. Uh, you know, um, at the beginning of the talk, we all played this little mental game, right? And I asked everybody to think of the names of leaders. Uh, well, now I'm finished, but I remind us of that game, and I hope that everybody will please think of your own name first when I say that we need smart, virtuous, dedicated people who are willing to suck it up and role model uh, some very different concepts about leadership uh, in a society, in a country, in a culture uh, that has uh, many beautiful and wonderful and great things about it, but also has a lot of pain and is in need of some great leadership. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you.